Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 167, Prime Minister Hamilton. In mid-1789, Congress set about establishing the core of the federal government. I know I've been hammering the point over and over during the last few episodes, but in April 1789, the federal government basically didn't exist. We're talking about the Senate, House of Representatives, and George Washington. Everything needed to be founded, which is what Congress was doing. The first three to be established were the Departments of Foreign Affairs, War, and Finance. This was followed by the creation of the Attorney General, the Postmaster General, the Superintendent of Land, and the Governor of the Northwest Territory. While these departments and offices were created by Congress, they were part of the executive and they were appointed by the President with the advice and consent of the Senate. But there was still a question over their removal. Hamilton argued in Federalist 77 that the Senate needed to consent for the removal of a presidential appointee, but Madison saw the danger of an overpowerful Congress he convinced the House to allow for a strong and independent president, but the debate was fiercer in the Senate, who held responsibility for confirming appointments and was resistant to relinquishing the right to remove them. In the end, a tie-breaking vote by Vice President Adams was required to force it through. Similar precedent setting was involved with treaties. The key section here, which I've already referred to, was Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution, otherwise known as the Advice and Consent Clause. It goes, He shall have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur. And he shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, but the Congress may, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers, as they think proper, in the President alone, in the course of laws, or in the heads of departments. End quote. So, just what does advice and consent mean? Consent is clear the Senate needed to ratify treaties and appointments, but advice was a more nebulous term. Originally, it was assumed that the Senate would literally offer advice on treaties and work with the President on them. In August 1789, Washington agreed a treaty with Southern Indian tribes and went to the Senate for its advice and consent. The session quickly descended into farce. Adams read each section of the treaty, which was then debated by the senators, but due to the noise of the street outside, Adams couldn't be heard. Bits needed to be repeated, but eventually a senator asked that a written version be submitted so they could study it in committee. Washington, who sat glaring at the senators the whole time, shouted, This defeats every purpose of my coming here. He left the chamber. The advice clause was dropped. When Washington issued the 1793 Proclamation of Neutrality, it was not done as a treaty, so senatorial consent was not required. Washington established the presidency as the leading institution in foreign affairs. 
While this particular process wasn't going smoothly, others were, such as his first appointment for a head of department. On September 11th, 1789, Washington submitted his nomination for Secretary of the Treasury. The Senate unanimously approved the appointment in a few minutes. The man they appointed was Alexander Hamilton. Given the current size of the cabinet, I find it very amusing to think that for one day, it was literally Washington and Hamilton. They were joined on September 12th, 1789, by Henry Knox as Secretary of War, and on February 2nd, 1790, by Edmund Randolph as Attorney General. And finally, on March 22nd, 1790, by Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State. Just as Madison was having a massive impact in the House, you'll be surprised to learn that the most significant member of the administration was the Treasury Secretary. Hamilton. Hamilton intended the United States to become a great power, a state in the manner of Great Britain. Hamilton saw himself as Prime Minister to Washington's monarchy, and arguably his inspiration was Robert Walpole, the First Lord of the Treasury who effectively created the office in the UK at the start of the 18th century. Hamilton, indeed, had a very different relationship to the other cabinet secretaries, Jefferson and Knox, who were treated as advisers, whereas Hamilton had a great degree of autonomy. The House discharged the Committee of Ways and Means six days after Hamilton's appointment as Treasury Secretary, and it was not re-established until Hamilton's resignation in 1795. Hamilton had far greater resources than the other secretaries. The Attorney General had no staff. There wasn't a Justice Department. Knox had three clerks at the War Department, Jefferson had four clerks and a messenger at the State Department, whereas Hamilton had six chief officers, 31 clerks and two messengers at the Treasury. Although it's worth noting that even this was tiny compared to those in Europe. Hamilton's self-appointed mission was to recreate the British financial system in North America. And to do that, we need to talk a little bit about the innovations at the core of the British financial system. During the Seven Years' War, Britain was a much poorer nation than France, but its government had more revenue. The strong financial position of the state was due to the Bank of England. In the 1690s, the English were doing what they normally did, fighting the French, and they needed funds. The government was struggling to raise revenue due to a lack of public funds, and in particular, a lack of credit. The solution was a privately owned bank. Lenders provided cash, and the bank was given possession of government balances and was allowed to issue banknotes against government bonds. The money for the war effort was raised and was spent, giving the economy a shot in the arm. This is crucial. Spending money is what keeps an economy moving, and the government is usually the biggest spender in a nation. By borrowing money and spend it, the government can create more wealth for the nation and itself than if it did nothing. This idea developed in Britain over the 1700s, and by the end of the century, it was a firmly established feature of British economics. National debt allows a nation to spend more in times of crisis. 
it would be vital in the Napoleonic Wars. It's a helpful economic lever in restarting an economy stuck in recession. For example, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which had the double benefit of investing the spent money. Eventually, the rest of the world would realise this was an optimum economic model, and permanent national debt is used everywhere. But it is a bit of a complicated economic truth to accept. That you're in a better financial position with some debt than no debt because of what you can do with that debt. Many have trouble with it today. As you will understand if you've ever read anything issued by the modern Republican Party about the debt ceiling. So, of course, it had its opponents in the 18th century. There was a divide in English society between those who supported the economic transformation and those who didn't. Critics pointed to the power held by the crown, in particular the standing army and the possibilities for patronism, both of which were caused by the Bank of England. This was despite the very things they criticised being responsible for the growth of British power in the 1700s. These arguments made their way over to America and naturally emerged when Hamilton set about replicating the British financial system. Hamilton thought he would be able to persuade Americans of the wisdom of this course, and it would be his main priority for the first years of the administration. He would set about writing four masterful reports to Congress on credit, on a national bank, on a mint, and on manufacturing. As you can imagine, considering that Hamilton wrote them, there will be a lot to get into here. So we'll pause things for now and pick them up next time with Hamilton as he sets about turning New York into the financial centre of the world. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Thank you.